You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first scripture reading this morning is taken from Psalm 73, and you can find it on page 484 of the Black Pew Bibles. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children." But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All rise for the gospel. Today's reading is from John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29, found in your pew Bibles, page 907. 
The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Be seated, please. Good morning. Again, welcome to Redeemer this morning. My name is Lane Cowan, and I have the privilege of being one of staff here at Redeemer. I'm also very grateful for the privilege of preaching God's word this morning. We are continuing in our summer series in the Psalms, looking to the Psalms to teach us how to be in conversation with our God. And today we arrive at Psalm 73. And you might notice right away that there's something different about this Psalm compared to what we've seen in the summer thus far. This one is attributed to Asaph. The author is Asaph. Who is Asaph? Well, you can read in the uh, First Chronicles 15 and 16 that Asaph, along with a number of others in Israel's tribes were appointed by David, the king of Israel, to help lead all of Israel in musical worship around the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, which houses God's law, which is a place for God's presence and power to be known. Around that Ark is this space protected for it. And David is calling Asaph to help lead musical worship in this space and to minister before the Ark day to day. So Asaph is a worship leader. And this first psalm of his is a conversation between Asaph and God about Asaph's doubt. I don't think it is insignificant that of the collection of a dozen or so of Asaph's psalms, the first one is about doubt. Doubt happens to everyone. Even the most accomplished, trusted, seasoned leaders within God's people experience doubt. And did you know that scripture teaches us how to doubt well, how to doubt faithfully? So this morning we're going to look at how Asaph experienced a disorientation in his doubt, a disorientation of doubt, and what allows him to reorient again. But before we do that, would you pray, for, pray with me? Our God, thank you for the gift of your word and by the power of your spirit, would you make it come alive to each of us this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock. Amen. My first ministry job as an eager, fresh-faced 20-something was leading a student ministry at a church in Charlottesville, just over the way. 
working with high schoolers and middle schoolers. Dan Rada was actually my partner leading this ministry together. And we had a boss. And one summer, this particular boss, this pastor over us, he took a trip to the Colorado Rockies and experiencing at elevation some issue with his inner ear popping. Something happened where he suddenly and very overwhelmingly started experiencing vertigo. He came back to Charlottesville and just kind of leaned to one side and was dizzy all the time. Well, in our wisdom as 20-somethings, those of us who shared offices in the hallway where our boss was thought it would be a really good idea to prank him. So one morning before he was due to arrive, we went into his office and we shifted everything a little off-center. We shimmed his desk and his chair. We took all the pictures on his wall and tilted them all in one same direction off-center. We even tilted the books on his shelves, the objects on his desk. We wasted a lot of paper and rulers, anything we could find to make everything in that office seem like it was leaning to one side. Then we gathered with glee at the edge of the hall, like the three stooges popping their heads around a corner, one stacked on the other, and just watched for him to come in to his office. And he did, he let himself in, opened the door with his key, stepped in and about two and a half seconds later, stepped out, leaned against the outside wall, sweating, gray-faced, and he glared at us and he said two words, fix it. <laughs> and then he left out of the church and didn't come back that day. So we realized that we might not have been as compassionate to his experience of this physical vertigo, this orient, disorientation. And I had never experienced anything like that sort of uh, physical malady. I didn't know what it felt like to be unable to find center and to know how to walk steady. I didn't know what that was like physically, but I have experienced spiritual disorientation, a spiritual vertigo. You see, I grew up thinking Christians were crazy. I was raised to believe that they were tragically, uh, woefully misinformed. And as I passed through childhood and reached the point where I started college, I had a lot of ideas, but mostly a lot of confusions about if there was a God and what he was like and how he operated in the world and what he wanted for me, from me. And halfway through college, I was completely overwhelmed by the fact that I was surrounded by so many different people with their own very different answers to those questions. And it was disorienting to me. And I reached a point where I started feeling truly paralyzed about how to make my way forward, where to place my steps next. Because I didn't know what was true. I didn't know which end was up. And it was terrible. This spiritual vertigo, this spiritual disorientation, this dizziness of not knowing how to place my feet. Asaph is experiencing this sort of disorientation here in this psalm. Look at verses two and three. Well, first verse one, he names God's goodness, but goes on to say, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph almost slips. He's tottering on an edge. He is dizzy. He is almost lost. 
He's describing experiencing almost a total loss of faith. And this is a good definition of doubt, a spiritual vertigo, something where the things you see of your life Give your mind something it cannot process, it cannot make sense of. You cannot see which way forward, where to place your feet. This is doubt. Why is Asaph experiencing this spiritual disorientation, this vertigo? Because the wicked are winning. If you look at verses four through nine, Asaph is describing something that totally confounds him. These verses describe people who are growing fat by feeding on the vulnerabilities of others. They dismiss God, they mock the faithful. They are living in total denial of God's righteous way of living. And they seem to be winning life. They seem to be growing sleek and fat by taking advantage of others. They either believe God isn't real or God doesn't care. They dismiss God entirely, seemingly without consequence. And that did not square up with Asaph's faith, his belief system. Now it seemed violence and arrogance was the way to move ahead. Taking advantage of the poor and needy helps you get what you want. Asaph is wrestling with the question of why good things can happen to bad people. But Asaph's disorientation here, his doubt, is not merely an intellectual quandary to work through. Look at verses 13 and 14. Asaph writes, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, Asaph is experiencing something. He's experiencing affliction. He was personally experiencing a life that was worse than the lives of these wicked. He is actually experiencing injustices and suffering while watching violent God mockers live the high life. And so Asaph is also wrestling with another question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Do you know these two questions? I do. And this was disorienting to Asaph. The Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann writes that this Psalm 73 is an assault on spiritual naivete as we try to make sense of what happens in the world around us and hold it up to our faith. Now you see, there's something important to recognize about doubt, about how doubt works. You see, doubts don't usually come through reason, through thinking alone. They are not purely rational. They come by way of our experiences. I spent some years working with students of high school and middle school years, and later I went to campus ministry and worked at UVA. And I watched a number of college students lose their faith. Lord willing, they will regain that. But what I saw was not a dramatic loss the way most of their parents feared would happen. You see, parents of these students feared that their children would go into a class where there was an argumentative, atheistic professor who would crush their faith, who would argue them out of their faith fully and conclusively. That's not what I saw. I never saw that. Instead, I saw students who had their faith eroded over time as they watched their peers live a life that they were envious of, as they had doubts that sat untended and unchecked, 
And meanwhile, their hearts were wanting to have a new belief system to justify this new way of life that was so appealing to them. Scripture affirms something of how we work here, that our hearts override our reason all the time. We are not rational creatures alone. Our minds find ways to justify what our hearts want to be true. Eventually, as I left campus ministry and went on staff with a local church in Charlottesville and began to sit with older folks, men and women, dear ones, who were working through their stories with God, it was easy to see how many of them, and I know how many of you, face experiences that were deeply, deeply disorienting. The death of a marriage, the death of a child, the crumbling of financial security, terrible injustices at the hands of wicked authority, diagnosis of terminal illness, and uh, so much more in the way of experiences that did not line up with what they expected their life to be. And they had a deep disorientation in trying to figure out how to move forward, where to place their feet. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul takes faith and opposes it, not with reason, but with sight. Faith as opposed to sight, because faith is holding on to what you believe is true, even though what you see contradicts that. And doubt comes when something of our experience, what we see before us, contradicts the faith we want to hold as true. And so again, faith is not merely rational. In fact, it is also anchored in our experience. Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, suggests that we often tend to deal with doubt in two ways. The first is, quote, the religious approach. And this is the approach which believes doubt is a threat, a threat to avoid. To deny or suppress doubt is important because Giving an attention, real attention to doubt is to possibly feed a monster that grows larger and consumes everything in its path and topples some sort of precarious balance. That's the religious approach. And then he describes a quote, secular approach where doubt is to be celebrated, uh, to be acquiesced to, to cave into it, to let it steer you without any check or pushback because anything that you're feeling in a moment is the most true thing about you, regardless of what you might have felt before. And anyway, a posture of doubt or skepticism or cynicism is a, a mature approach to life and a faithful posture is immature, maybe even childishly dangerous. That's the secular approach. But we Christians need to be able to talk about our doubt with each other, with God, to engage it, to understand that scripture in fact gives us tracks to follow in order to doubt faithfully, to doubt Christianly. This psalm gives us a window into how Asaph himself engages his doubt with God. He does not cave into it, we'll see. He does not pretend this doubt doesn't exist. He prays his doubts to God to receive whatever God has for him in return. So let's look to the rest of the psalm to see how Asaph moves from the disorientation of his doubt to a reorientation? How does he regain solid footing once more? And I wanna point out four reorientations. First, Asaph reorients 
in worship. He reorients in worship, which leads to him reorienting with true sight, with true spiritual sight. He reorients in worship, which leads him to reorient in sight. Secondly, he reorients in confession. And reorienting in confession leads him to reorient in right relationship with God, communion with God. So let's go through these. First, look at 16 and 17. Asaph writes, but when I thought how to understand this, this being, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? When I sought, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Asaph entering the sanctuary is not merely speaking about Asaph coming into a big, perhaps beautiful, empty worship space. Because you remember, this sanctuary that Asaph speaks of is this place around which uh, the people are gathering in worship around the Ark of the Covenant, uh, this tent of meeting. And here's where continuous worship and praise and sacrifice is being made to God. So Asaph is actually entering into worship. He's participating in worship in this place, the sanctuary. He prays with God's people. He sings with God's people. He recites and remembers God's word along with God's people. And remember, you don't get into doubt by reason or thinking alone. And you don't get out of doubt by reason or thinking alone. And Asaph is participating or experiencing God in worship and the truth of God in worship. Have you ever had a, this, this phenomenon where you are experiencing doubt, something that felt and seemed very real and true to you no longer did, does, and a dear friend goes before you and speaks truth, sings truth, prays truth over you, and the power of that is surprising? You're reoriented to this truth that seemed so weak just moments before. Asaph is participating in worship, which helps him reorient. How? Well, we see that he is discerning with better, truer sight here, that he sees more clearly and more truly what is in store for the wicked, what is their end. Look at verse 18 through 20. Truly you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You see, Asaph is discerning that the wicked are living by their own faith and it is a false one. These wicked are striding through life, denying God. Well, you cannot disbelieve in God without believing in something or someone else. We are not made otherwise. We all have to worship something or someone. Whether it's money, whether it's intellect, whether it's youth and beauty, whether it is ourselves or the people that we idolize and put on pedestals before us, we are made for worship. And if we do not worship God, we worship something or someone else. Verse 11 says, they, the wicked say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? These wicked are living out their belief or their faith. There, there is no God. Or he doesn't see, he doesn't care. He will not judge them. 
Asaph goes on in verse 25 and 26 to name that God is his greatest desire and his portion forever. Asaph is going to compare his portion to that of the wicked. You see, he's reorienting with better, truer sight. If you are living for a portion that is material wealth, status, power, earthly privilege, earthly youth and beauty, if you are living for a portion like that, any of that can be taken away in a moment. Empires can topple in a day. And the empire making of our own lives, our own personal kingdoms can be toppled just as quickly. Asaph's portion is guaranteed. Asaph recognizes that the way of the wicked is more slippery, more unstable, more dreamlike than his own reality because eventually they will have to wake up from that dream. Asaph's faith, his footing is more sure. So he reorients in worship, which helps him reorient in true spiritual sight. But we also see that Asaph reorients in confession. Look at verse 21 and 22, where he says, he writes, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph is honestly confessing his own failings here. In verse three, he's already named envy, his envy of the wicked. In verse 21, he names bitterness. In verse 22, a brutish ignorance. You see, Asaph recognizes that his disorientation is not merely an intellectual problem outside of himself that he has to work out. He is confessing that his own desires are at work. His own heart and motivations have a place here, have a part. And Asaph is confident that at the end, God does not ever let him go, even when he acts like a dumb, brutish animal. Because you see, Asaph, in reorienting through confession, then comes to reorient in right relationship, in communion with the true God. Look at verse 23 and onward. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You, God, hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Asaph is confident in the end that God does not ever let him go, even when, while, he acts like a dumb, unsensing, brutish animal. When Asaph is disoriented and misguided, God's handhold on him is steady and sure, constant. There's another example of God's hand guiding those who are disoriented, who are misunderstanding in their doubt. If you look at the front page of your liturgy, this is a beautiful image of Thomas encountering the risen Jesus. This is Caravaggio's painting of that scene from John 20 that we heard earlier. This is perhaps the most famous instance where scripture portrays doubt. You see, Thomas, one of the disciples, had missed seeing Jesus when he first appeared to the disciples after he arose from the dead. Thomas was not there. And so he tells the other disciples, I cannot believe that Jesus is alive unless I see by myself, for myself. He wants to operate by sight. 
Because what he just saw days before was Jesus dead and buried. And what happens as Jesus moves into this space where Thomas and other disciples have gathered, where Thomas, or excuse me, where Jesus moves towards Thomas. He does not abandon Thomas, kick him out of the room. He does not uh, tell him to either ignore his doubt or give over to it. The very first thing that Jesus does is meet Thomas in his doubt with this profoundly intimate invitation to come right up to his own person and lay hands on him. To come and see up close who Jesus really is. And only after that does Jesus call Thomas to stop doubting and start believing. Now look at this image once more. I want you to see where are Jesus's hands here. One hand of Jesus is holding back his tunic and uh, clearing the sight, the way to, for Thomas to see the wounds in his side. But do you see that other hand? It's a little harder to spot. It is holding Thomas's arm and guiding Thomas's own hand to his wounded side. Because Jesus in meeting Thomas's doubt takes his outstretched arm and with a hand that is steady and sure in compassion and love and the desire to help Thomas see what is real and true, Jesus guides Thomas to where his doubt meets this cruciform love of Jesus himself. Do you know that that is true for you? Do you know that that is true for you? And what happens after this? Thomas, returns the loftiest response, calling Jesus my Lord and my God. This is the clearest identification of Christ that any of the disciples have uttered up until this point. Thomas's naming of his doubt prior brings Jesus more intimately into Thomas's life and leads Thomas to a higher affirmation of faith than if he hadn't questioned at all. And this is by way of Jesus's steady, compassionate invitation for Thomas to bring his doubt straight to him. Now consider Jesus himself. Jesus was never beastly or ignorant before God, his father. Jesus was the one person that always deserved the handhold of God. Jesus perfectly lived a righteous way of life the complete antithesis to those wicked described in the earlier verses of this psalm. But Jesus experiences God letting go. As Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is saying, I cannot feel your hand, Father. Why did that happen? So that we who look to Jesus as our Lord and Savior would know only the truth of Asaph's words here, that you, God, continually hold my right hand, holding us fast even when we cannot or will not grip back. 
There's an Old Testament theologian named Walter Brueggemann who names this psalm as one of the most satisfying. He traces the pattern of the psalm this way, that Asaph moves from engagement with God to struggle against God to wondrous communion with God. And Asaph's writing this psalm is a joyous act of trust. You see, life for Asaph regains a moral coherence. It makes sense now, but not because the circumstances have changed, but rather Asaph has. As Brueggemann says, Asaph learns that life lived in opposition to God simply will not work in the end, no matter how good and successful it looks for now. The portion of the wicked in the end will be destruction, but Asaph's portion is God himself forever. Let me bring us to a close here. In college, as I was experiencing this terrible disorientation and this fearful paralysis and not knowing where to plant my feet. I was a religious studies major and I was researching the heck out of it, out of what faith was supposed to be. I took classes in Eastern religions and Western religions. I was speaking to people who held belief in their various traditions and trying to hear from their own testimonies. I was trying to prove on paper which leap forward, which step forward was the most trustworthy and true. But I reached a point of no return. I was reading a book called The Severe Mercy, a book that I'm sure a number of you know by this Christian man named Sheldon Von Aachen. This is a wonderful story about he and his wife's journey to faith, as well as some of the experiences they have that are deeply trying and disorienting and how God holds them fast. And there's a passage here as Von Aachen is describing his own research of the question of faith, where he reached the point of no return for himself. He says, in my old easygoing theism, I had regarded Christianity as a sort of fairy tale and I had neither accepted or rejected Jesus since I had never in fact encountered him. Now I had. And the position was not, as I had been comfortably thinking all these months, merely a question of whether I was to accept him as Messiah or not. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject him. My God, there was a gap behind me too. Perhaps the leap to acceptance forward was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God, there was no certainty that he was not. And so I reached this point where I realized I wasn't in a position of neutrality, of no faith in order to then decide if I moved towards Jesus in faith. I could not avoid planting my feet on something that I faithfully hoped would hold steady and true. And so I started talking to Jesus as if he was there. I started praying to Jesus for the first time. You know, consider if you have doubts about a person, someone you know, perhaps from afar, what helps more? Sitting by yourself, wondering about this person, thinking about what he or she may be like, or going to that person? asking directly. 
And so I began praying my doubts to Jesus as if he was really there and really listening. And his hand has held me ever since, even when my own grip has flagged and faltered. Thanks be to God. And so I wanna leave you with a few questions to consider. Whether you are Christian or not, what conversations could you be having with God right now? What would it look like for you to bring your doubt before God and see what he has to say in return? Where is God inviting you to come, to lay hands on him, to come and see for yourself? Are you making use of all the reorienting helps available to you? Worship among God's people to be able to reorient your sight. Confession and examination of your own heart in order to reorient in communion with God. Because Jesus invites us always to pray our doubt to him and to trust that in love for us, he would help us reorient that we might actually reach a point of knowing him more deeply and truly than if we had never raised our doubts at all. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that this is who you are, a God of unfailing love and compassion that invites us to move towards you, even in our doubt, and to trust that you want to show yourself to us in return. Lord, would you do so as we come to your table? In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.